Uh, thank you, Catherine, and good morning, everyone. Am I audible? Yes. Thank you. Um, wow, that passage. <laughs> wow. Um, please do have it open in front of you. Um, I urge you, I entreat you to have that passage open in front of you as we, in a few moments' time, we pick our way through it and dig into it and seek to discover um, its main, its biggest, its most priceless nugget of gold. So it's Matthew 25, verses 31 onwards, page 995 in the Church Bibles. But I'd like to offer, I need to offer a word of prayer over this passage. Lord God, you are a good father, more wise, more loving, more truthful than, truthful than any earthly father. You have promised to give good things to those who ask you. We ask you now to bring forth and to show us wonderful things from your word, to build us up in our most holy faith and deepen our love for Jesus our Saviour and for one another in him. Amen. So, Leslie Graham, aka Dirty Den from EastEnders, has died at the age of 71. As you probably know, his life off the screen was at least as colourful as his life on screen. Jailed for murder at the age of 18, sacked over a sex scandal, made homeless following divorce, Leslie Graham's life was certainly very colourful. Of the murder of a taxi driver in a bungled robbery when uh, Graham was just a teenager, um, Graham would admit in later life that he'd done a terrible thing, but beyond that would say very little about it. That, he said, is a matter between me and my maker. Now, finally, they can have their showdown, concluded one of yesterday's newspapers. Now, finally, he and his maker can have their showdown. There's just three things wrong with the conclusion of that article, I think. Now, finally, they can have their showdown. Uh, Leslie Graham's showdown with his maker doesn't happen now. It happens at some undisclosed future day. And it's not a showdown. It's actually quite a calm affair. There is no argument and no pleading. Perhaps one or two questions and one or two clarifications. But all the main decisions have been made in this life and not in the life to come. And it's not only Leslie Graham who will be meeting his maker, but each and every one of us, according to this morning's Bible passage, Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. And quite what all of that has to do with welcome, everyone, body welcome... <laughs> remains to be seen. But this is not an easy passage to understand. So I'd like us to walk together through it and then seek to discover its main point, what Jesus is really trying to urge upon us from this passage. 
and see then what it might have to do with the welcome ministry of the Christian church. So walking through this passage then in outline, hopefully with your Bible in front of you so that you can see for yourself whether these things are so in an attitude of the Bereans uh, in the book of Acts. What do we have? First of all, in this passage, we have a glorious coming. Jesus describes himself here and in 27 other places in Matthew's gospel as the son of man. It's his favorite self-designation. It describes him both as a man, human, understanding our human nature, our frailty, our weakness. But drawing that picture of the Son of Man from the book of Daniel and chapter 7, also glorious, exalted, given authority by God himself over all people and all nations. Jesus is the Son of Man, and he, according to verse 31, will be coming. He, human, yet now exalted, soon to be hanging on his cross to suffer and to die in pain and humiliation. Now saying, just a few days before his death, a day is coming when he, Jesus, the Son of Man, will sit on his throne and judge the world in righteousness. The second thing we have in this passage is a worldwide gathering. Verse 32, the first part of verse 32. Everyone will be there. All nations. Does that just remind you of something that Jesus will say after his death and resurrection? He sends out his people to all nations. And all nations will now be called in to give an account to Jesus, the Son of Man. Everyone will be there. The old and the young. The rich and the poor. You and I. Leslie Grantham and everyone else will be there. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ in the words of the Apostle Paul. We have a date with destiny. Thirdly, we find in this passage an exact separation. Verses 32 and verse 33. Everyone is mixed up now. Isn't it great that you and I are not given the task of saying, oh, he and she are Christians, but those over there aren't. It's not your job and it's not mine. God only knows and reads the heart and the life truly. But there will be an exact separation. Sheep and goats in New Testament times were uh, not sort of brown and white, but they were both rather speckled and difficult to distinguish. Often during the day they would be herded and kept together. At the end of the day, the shepherd would separate them. Such an unfailing, infallible separation will take place at this worldwide gathering. And I'm just pleased that that exact separation of who is a sheep, who is a goat, who is to go on the left hand and who is to go on the right hand is left to the all-knowing and all-seeing Son of Man and not to me, and not to you. 
Next we have in this passage a dual destiny. Those on the right hand and those on the left hand will go to their separate destinies. The Son of Man will say to one group, those on his right, come. What a wonderful welcome. What a wonderful word to hear from the lips of the Son of Man. Come. Come to a kingdom that has been prepared for you. A kingdom full of light and life and love. An eternal kingdom from which, in which you will never perish and from which you can never be taken. And those on his left will hear the word depart. What a terrible banishment. A banishment to a place that was never intended for them in the first place. It was, Jesus says, prepared for the devil and his angels. They will depart to a place unfit for human habitation. And then, if you pardon my English, a precise criterion. A precise standard against which these two groups will be distinguished and judged. And the criterion comes, perhaps as a surprise to many of us, the criterion is service to Christ. Verse 35 and following. For I, Jesus says, was hungry and you gave me something to eat. He's saying, speaking to those on the right. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And those on the right are distinguished by Jesus by the fact they did those kinds of things. And those on the left did not do those kinds of things for Christ. Are you surprised that the judgment is based on what people have or have not done? Are we not taught to believe in salvation by grace, through faith, not because of any works that we have done? Yes, we are. So what's going on here? That Jesus now judges each and every one of us on the basis of service to himself. Well, yes, we are saved by grace through faith. But what kind of faith? Scripture insists it's a working faith. It's a faith that works. We are not, in fact, saved by faith or works, but by a faith that works. We know this clearly from James's epistle, where he says in chapter 2, faith without deeds is dead. But the apostle Paul says the same thing in Galatians chapter 5. The only thing he says that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And Jesus himself said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? There's the criterion then, a faith, a, a faith that works, a faith that serves, a faith that is not dead but alive. But then there's a puzzled question 
in verses 37 and 44 from both groups of people, those on the left and those on the right. Jesus has said, I judge you according to what you did for me. And the question is, well, Lord, we never knew you. We never met you. How could we possibly have either done or failed to do things for you? And then Jesus' intriguing explanation. Whatever you did or failed to do for the least of these brothers of mine, you either did or did not do for me. Jesus counts service towards the least of his brothers as service to himself. Let's be quite clear that in Matthew's gospel, whenever Jesus refers to his brothers and his sisters, he's referring to his disciples each and every time. Service to his people counts as service to himself. So here then is the key verse. Here is the nugget of gold. Here's the center of this passage. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. This very point is put with even greater clarity a few chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 20 when Jesus says, he who receives you receives me and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. Having picked our way through that passage and I think, I hope, I trust, found its centre, let's share now three implications of this, especially as they relate to our subject at the moment in these Sunday morning services, that of being a welcoming church. Implication number one. To belong to Christ is to belong to his people. There is no such thing as a solitary Christian. Please humor me by glancing at the person on your immediate left, and then the person on your right, then the person immediately in front of you, you can say hi as well, and the person immediately behind you without unscrewing your head, and now ponder the following words by the late Bishop Geoffrey Paul. There is no way of belonging to Christ except by belonging gladly and irrevocably to that marvellous and extraordinary ragbag of saints and fatheads who make up the one holy and apostolic church. That's us, folks. Extraordinary ragbag. Are you a member of a gym, but never go? Do you have a large family, but never meet up with any of them, even on Father's Day? Have you made a commitment to Jesus, but not yet to his people? 
Not many weeks ago, we were working our way through that beautiful book, Old Testament book of, of Ruth. And we pondered those wonderful words of commitment of Ruth, a foreigner, a Gentile, a Moabitess, to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Ruth said this as she made her way to Naomi's home and people. Wherever you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And I'll make that commitment, said Ruth, until the day we die. Where you die, I will die. Now, maybe you're still looking for a church fellowship to join. And maybe this isn't the one for you. That's okay. But if you count yourself a Christian, you are already a member of the people of Christ. And you need to commit to those people because you belong to them. They need you and you need them. To belong to Christ is to belong to his people. Secondly, to serve Christ is to serve his people. As we have seen, Jesus counts kindness towards his people as kindness towards himself. But then we say, should we not be kind to everyone? Well, of course we should be kind to everyone, whether they are Christians or not. Read Amos and Micah in the Old Testament, or the Gospel of Luke, or the Epistle of James in the New Testament. Consider the words and the works and the example of Jesus himself. Of course we should be kind to everyone. But that's not what he's talking about here. Paul, in Galatians chapter 6, captures something of what Jesus is talking about here when he urges, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Because they are indeed our family, and we owe one another a special debt of love and service. And note please also that Jesus only expects us to do what we can do. He doesn't talk about curing the sick, but visiting them, uh, but comforting them. He doesn't talk about releasing the prisoner, but visiting him. As Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament says, whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your might, and don't fret too much about the things that you cannot do. To love Christ is to love his people. Have you heard the expression, they like Jesus but hate the church? (laughs) And if they are thinking of the church as institutionally conceived, I can sympathize with that. But if we define the church as it should biblically be defined, as the people of God, it is not simply not possible to like Jesus, but to hate his people. Again, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, he who receives you, receives me. In John's gospel, he says to his disciples, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And again in John chapter 15, you are my friends if you do what I command, and this is my command, love one another. I have heard several recent testimonies just in the past few weeks, both from insiders and outsiders of how folk here at Holy Trinity love and serve 
and support one another. It is a great tool for the gospel. It's a great witness to the gospel for others to see Christians loving and supporting one another. Let's commit to doing that more and more for the sake of Christ and his gospel. I love you, and I will seek to build you up and not tear you down. I love you, and I will go the second and the third and the fourth mile for you. I love you, and I will not flatter you, but speak the truth to you in love. I love you, and I will put the best and not the worst complexion on your words and your actions. And yes, I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. One more thing, having considered those implications from our passage, to belong to Christ is to belong to his people. To serve Christ is to serve his people. To love Christ is to love his people. One more thing. The grand reason why Jesus has not yet come as son of man to judge the world and to divide the whole world into uh, into sheep and goats is God's patience. For God to call us to use every opportunity in this life while we have life and opportunity to take the right road, the gospel road, the road to eternal life. And let's be clear that goats can become sheep. There was once a man in the early days of the Christian church who persecuted the church terribly. And then Jesus met him as he was traveling along the road. And Jesus said to that man, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, Paul had been, uh, Saul had been persecuting Christ's people, but Jesus counts that persecution as persecuting himself. Paul, uh, Saul says, who are you, Lord? And, and Jesus replies, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Well, that encounter with Jesus had a momentous and life-changing and earth-shattering effect on Saul, who became Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles. You may or may not have a Damascus Road experience of your own, but each of us either has been or can be transformed by Jesus from a rebel to a friend, from a goat to a sheep, from one who is destined for a place unfit for human habitation to a place full of life and light and glory. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge your words sometimes sound hard to us, but we believe too that just as we are taught to speak the truth in love, you speak the truth to love in love to us. May we be instructed and inspired to follow you and love you And in following and in loving you, belong to, serve and love one another 
and so commend your good news to those within and those without who perhaps do not yet know your grace for themselves. Amen.